Go. Okay. Good morrow, afternoon, or evening, everyone, wherever you are. Um, and welcome to Crow and Fern's Guide to Weird Fiction, Folklore, Mythology, and Everything in Between. I'm Crow, and she... And I'm Fern! <laughs> Hi! <laughs> and she's Fern. <laughs> and... I'm the one who's going to talk to you about weird fiction. She's going to talk to you about folklore and mythology. And together, we cover everything in between. Mm-hmm. Except there won't be a lot of the everything in between this month. We're sorry. So you're just going to have to do with the weird fiction, folklore, and mythology. Mm-hmm. Well, this one's coming out in October, right? So this is a normal episode. It, this one is coming out. But yeah. in November, we have a theme. And it's serial killers. We have a theme. <laughs> And that will be exciting. Yeah, we're going to scare everyone. I'm going to cover Go all of, uh, like, how mythology and, or folklore intersect with serial killers and uh, some actual trials where that happened. <laughs> I, I'm actually really excited yes. because I have some wild cases. You know, we have people being accused of being werewolves, vampires, and, yeah, lots of stuff. And Crow also has some exciting so stuff. So we're going beyond... Mm-hmm. The Salem witch trials. We have werewolf and vampire trials. Indeed. Cool. Yep, yep. I've got both of those and then some. Got a Satanist in there too. <laughs> and she has a Satanist. She's just like going all out. We yep. were probably, you know what? I feel like it would have been cooler if we'd done that in October. But that's okay. We're learning. I got I got some creepy Next stuff in October. for October. I'm I'm happy with my October work. <laughs> You're happy with your October. I bought you guys, uh, brought you guys. Sorry, um, heads and toilets and cursed rabbits and the dude who loves cats but likes to draw women without their faces on. Nice. Um, nice. Today, <laughs> we bring you something very different. But first, intro music. And today, Today. um, the title of our episode will be Kafka and the Dread of Uncertainty. Ooh. Um, She wouldn't tell me which Kafka thing she was doing, so this is a surprise for me, too. (laughs) This is Kafka Attempt Numero Dos, because we, yeah, we initially had an episode on Kafka, and then I felt like I didn't do him justice, so I'm... I decided to completely revamp the Kafka episode, and now I'm one week late for October. So we usually try to record things a month mm-hmm. early, um, but I'm recording this the week of. Yeah. You know, actually, like, yeah, a couple of days before we're supposed to put it on. So yeah, awesome. ADHD powers kick in. Woo! No, I, I um, feel you. <laughs> Sometimes my autism powers yeah. work the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Neurodivergent you know people unite. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell people why we're re-recording this just okay, really quick okay. because I'm planning on uploading the um, initial episode maybe somewhere. I'm not really sure where. You can put it on um, like if we ever get a Patreon. Because when I, if you ever, if we ever get a Patreon, mm-hmm. we could put it there. But anyway, go ahead. 
Exactly. If we get a Patreon, yeah, and I, and I might upload it like before, way before the Patreon. Like I, I feel like I'm probably gonna put this one on for free. You're welcome. Super fucking generous here. <laughs> um, it's because when I I tried giving. Okay, okay, okay. So basically, as someone who did not go to an English speaking school, we didn't really study English literature, so I uh-huh. never really got to read any of the classics. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I had to read 1984 and Brave New World and The Secret Garden, all of that stuff as an adult, like in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I never got to read Kafka. The first time I came, like, I became aware of who Kafka is was, I think, in 2017 mm-hmm. when an old friend was super obsessed with him. Well, and-, and told me, oh, you know, like, I can't wait to learn German so I can start reading Kafka properly. And that's when I found out about him. And I was like, you know what? I'm already reading. Um, uh, like I, I'm trying to get into classic literature, sure, so sure. I'm going to try to pick up Kafka. Yeah. I tried it that time, and I did not like it. And I put Kafka down, and I was just like, nope, nope. This is one of those writers that pretends that they're super into metaphors and overwhelms you with unnecessary complexities and whatever. Like you uh-huh. know, um, what was it called? Ulysses. Yeah. So oh, I it was a like Ulysses a James thing. Joyce thing. Yeah. 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 I know what you're talking about. (laughs) So I was just like, nope, nope, not going to do it. I don't have time for that. I put it down. And then when we started doing the podcast, Fern was like, Crow, you know who's super into weird fiction? Like the OG weird fiction author? And she's like, you should do Kafka. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to pick up Kafka again. So then I tried to pick up Kafka again. And I, again, I tried to analyze a country doctor. I didn't like a country doctor. I did. I got very (laughs) upset and I said it. I I enjoyed that. I'm sorry. She enjoyed that. Uh, my mom is a big fan of Kafka, and she listened to the episode. Hi, mom. She listened to the episode, and she was like, uh, she really like, she really uh-huh. liked it. So why am I not putting it up? And I'm like, it's none of anyone's business. It's actually because I was really mean <laughs> to Kafka's works, and it was she so was. obvious that I didn't understand <laughs> but, the method. Yeah behind the madness I was just like it's so boring and frustrating and I had to sit through lectures like I was just I don't know it was so obvious that I didn't understand what I was working with here I I enjoyed and it, when though. I was listening to it again I just got really bitter that everyone was able to enjoy Kafka and I wasn't <laughs> so I did the um, I'm gonna call it a potential ADHD thing because I was like fuck this I'm gonna figure out why people mm-hmm. like him if it's the last thing mm-hmm. I do but I'm still alive, so it wasn't the last thing. Well, I did. I'm glad. I'm glad because I don't um, want to do the podcast on my own. Thank you. But also, like, congrats on Thank really you. taking a deep dive to try and figure him out. Because now I'm super excited to see what you managed to pull out. Because, you know, before we started recording, Crow was telling me that she likes Kafka now. And so I'm super excited to see the, wait for it, metamorphosis of Crow. <laughs> I made a Kafka that- reference. <laughs> okay you're gonna love it because you know you're gonna love that kafka reference in Ooh. a second um okay but anyway jumping right into it um thank you for being a part of my character growth to both fern and the people listening. i'm excited i'm here okay. for the ride <laughs> yes okay so um i so everyone knows that kafka is a dude with an incredibly rich history wrought with daddy issues but let he or she or they um who grew up in a loving family cast the first stone okay we all have daddy issues here we all float down here 
man. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not going to be going into his biography, even though it's incredibly interesting. Okay. We might cover it in later episodes. Um, and I'm also not going to be analyzing every aspect of Kafka's art because he's an author um, whose work contains such a stylistic breadth that would make it impossible to cover in fucking an uh -huh. hour, which is what I'm yeah, for Yeah, here. he's a complex Instead, author, that's for sure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We're looking into one specific aspect, anxiety and how Kafka manages to leave us squirming in our seats without gore and without a threat of death or physical mm -hmm. harm to us or our nice. loved ones. Okay? Because... He gets it, you in um, the brain. He gets under your skin. Okay? It was... So this was part of the reason that I think I struggled so much um, reading Kafka. Um, I'm usually very good at putting... A name to my emotions sure, right sure. I feel like I'm in tune with myself I know what's going on most of the time so okay. well sometimes but we have to talk it out but yes, yeah it's ahead. all good <laughs> that's normal though I think I think <laughs> okay. a lot of people actually struggle with putting a name to their emotions because if we Th there's nothing wrong with that nothing Absolutely wrong with that nothing. and, and mm, I th but I'm saying like it's well because um sometimes I think like when you're in the moment sometimes you don't recognize what you're feeling and I I think that is kind of a universal experience. Like you need to step back to really realize it. Um, unless it's like something super strong, you know? Exactly. And that's why. So when I, it was really difficult for me to read Kafka stories in one sitting. So that's what happened when I was reading um, things like A Country Doctor or A Hunger Artist, which were the stories that I was supposed to cover um, in my previous uh, like attempt at recording mm -hmm. Kafka. So at first I thought it was because I got bored with his literary style because you usually see things like sparse dialogue, which I am not a fan of, mm -hmm. characters seeming to be stuck in space, um, a flat tone, readers having to sort of wade through these needlessly complex thought processes of the character. Okay. But yeah. then on my second attempt at a Kafka episode now and reading about a billion articles I came to realize the reason I struggled to read Kafka stories was his impeccable ability at inducing anxiety not horror anxiety there's a difference okay so okay Kafka has a way of inducing this thing this like collar constricting anxiety hopelessness or what I would describe as a like nails being cut raw digging into concrete sense of futility that keeps getting worse and worse as you read his work it's so much worse than most of the horror novels I've read. It's the same thing that you, like, for example, if you would compare a masterful horror screenwriter to another one who relies on things like cheap gore or special effects right, or jump right. scares. Those tools can be, like, they can be used sometimes and they can be very effective, but you have to admire the screenwriters or the authors or the artists who go without them right, because they're right. such an essential part of the genre. Yeah, point, Crow and right? I have had a lot of talks about horror because she's more into horror than yes. I am. But I've, I've always said, like, yes. I appreciate a good psychological thriller because that is a, a work of exactly. art. You know, like, if, if someone can take a moment to really get into your head and fuck you up, that's a, that's a masterpiece. <laughs> Exactly. And that's exactly what Kafka does. Mm -hmm. So how does he do that? Um, so 
he does that through like a huge number of techniques but the ones that we're going to be looking at in this quote unquote analyses is tone cognitive dissonance and the inescapability of the absurd Ooh. we're going to use his best known work as our case study um all german speaking people out there cover your ears <laughs> die verwandlung the metamorphosis the me- i guessed it right <laughs> You guessed it right. You guessed it right. <laughs> Metamorphosis. I tried to stay away from it because it's one of his longer stories, and I'm terrified of analyzing longer uh-huh. stories because I'm not good at summarizing things. So, but I did my best. Well, I and we're keeping it under. Nice, an and I'm excited. I, I'm real. I'm genuinely excited for this. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. So, <laughs> the first thing. The first thing we're going to talk about is what is cognitive dissonance? I'm not going to take too long, but it's just so you guys have an idea what we're getting into, okay? So, the true horror of Kafka is not the absurd things happening around us, but our inability to stop fighting against them. Why are we frustrated with unsolved cases or pessimists that present problems without solutions? Um... Usually, even when we face the most absurd of circumstances, characters, which are us, continue to struggle for a reason because we want answers. We want to conquer the factors stressing us out, even when misery is inevitable. But in most cases, we can't seem to understand the source of our problems, and so we can't effectively overcome them. That's the point that Kafka usually tries to make. And there was a wonderful article by Professor Christine W. Sizemore called Anxiety in Kafka, a Function of Cognitive Dissonance. Cognitive Dissonance, yeah. I know, you. Okay, I I have to say. To your glutei. (laughs) Maximum, maximus, medius, minimus. I'm sitting on those. They're busy right now, but but I'm ready. Hold on to them. <laughs> so do you know what cognitive dissonance is first? Well, explain it for the audience. Because even if I know... You you try to explain what? it. What? No. Okay. Don't put me on the sure spotlight. That. No, because I have not read about it for a while and I feel like I'm going to say something wrong and I know you have it like on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> I do. So you might, you might as well not put me on the spot and just say, say something it. wrong. You just want to mock me. <laughs> Back to the thing. Cognitive dissonance is basically the way we perceive contradictory information um, and the mental toll that information that the sorry contradictions have on us. So it was a theory that was proposed by an American social psychologist known as uh, Leon Festinger that suggests that humans require a sense of internal consistency to function. Yes, that is from Wikipedia because I didn't know how to put it into my own words. It is kind of hard um, to basically, put into words, honestly. Because um, yeah. I've been th- sitting here exactly. thinking about how to word it ever since you asked me, but I I think that's good. Go ahead. Yeah. Our opinions and attitudes exist in these sensible, consistent, keyword, clusters. When a new behavior or idea challenges our consistency, we are thrown into the sense of 
disparity or like Mm -hmm, lack of mm -hmm. harmony clashing and that supposedly causes a sense of anxiety in us until we're able to make sense of the situation so we try to reduce this anxiety by doing usually one of four things either changing the behavior or the cognition Mm -hmm. justifying it by changing the conflicting cognition justifying it by adding new behaviors or cognitions or ignoring and denying information that conflicts with existing beliefs and they give a lot of examples on these the one that's used in wikipedia is for example someone who's on a diet who wants to eat a donut right so um for example if you they want to change the behavior they'll be like i'm just not going to eat the donut if they're going to try to justify the behavior by changing the conflicting cognition they'll be like oh well i deserve a cheat day from time to time if they're going to try to add new behaviors they'll be like you know i'll just work it off in the gym if they want to ignore or deny information that conflicts with their existing belief they'll just be like well the donut isn't going to make me fat anyway or you know the donut isn't a high sugar food and you can apply it to a lot of things like for example people who eat meat Mm -hmm. like me people who smoke and then find out that smoking can cause lung cancer a whole bunch of things yeah well and I've I've honestly been thinking about like anti-vaxxers this entire time you know (laughs) yes yes that, that uh, cognitive dissonance is a huge factor in a uh, conspiracy theorists uh-huh. as a whole because like some or people who idolize certain people and then realize that okay that person is not as perfect as we thought they were and i'm not talking about like a specific group literally anyone i'm even talking about people who idolize celebrities you know and then figure out that the celebrity was actually a piece of shit and then they try to justify it to themselves yeah and you know like i th- i think I'm very much prone to cognitive dissonance. Like when something happens, I want to understand it and I don't feel at peace until I do. Exactly. Like, um, what do you remember a few months ago when I was almost carjacked by that jerk? (laughs) I, I really, I wasn't, I was really shaken up and I didn't feel better until we were, Crow actually found some articles where it finally kind of explained why he did what he did. But that was really, really bothered yeah. me for a long time. Like, why did this happen? What was going through this man's head? And uh, she exactly. she found an article that kind of illuminated it, that somehow escaped my notice. And once I understood, like, oh, well, this man was really going through some things, uh... I don't think he was actually just violent for the sake of being violent. I think he had some mental illness. And once that was clear to me, I just felt better about it. So I I think I I get it. That's my thing. Like, I I get it. Like, once you see, like, you can kind of mentally put it back together, then you can feel at peace. So I, I totally relate to this and understand this. Like, it makes sense. It makes sense. Exactly. And the interesting, the the thing is, cognitive dissonance is something we have all experienced. Yeah, I think think so. Most people do. Or like, I would, I wouldn't even hesitate to hesitate to say that all people do because none of us can be logical 100% of the time. None of us understand exactly how the world works or everything about the way the world works. And that's why we're constantly in this state of trying to make sense to the new information we're being presented with, especially when it's traumatic information like what you've been through. Um, And it's interesting that you bring that up because that's how Kafka plays on our anxieties. Because Kafka 
like what he usually does, according to um, Professor Sizemore, is that he presents us usually with a world very similar to our own. So it's not like the worlds of Stephen King or Denpau Torishima. Um, it's usually a very normal setting mm-hmm. that you would, it, it's the same physics that you would expect yeah, <laughs> to yeah. like, you know, control our world. The same technology usually, the same social um, social and interpersonal standards we have in our day-to-day lives. And then something strange happens and we're left to ask ourselves, okay, so what what do we do in this case to make sense of the situation? Because it's usually not explained to us. We're usually left just wondering what the fuck is going on? Is it a dream? Is the character insane? Are they an unreliable narrator? What exactly is it that's going on? Um, he doesn't even give us room to say that this is just a story. There's no way it can happen in real life because everything else is presented so matter-of-factly and he so he uses cognitive dissonance he uses a very matter-of-fact tone for his narration uh-huh. remember in cursed bunny part one uh-huh. where i sort of struggled to explain the style that's used by a lot of east asian writers who um write horror fiction or weird fiction where no one reacts quote unquote the yeah, way they should yeah. and we said that oh maybe they're neurodiverse and we had that discussion yeah i, I do remember. remember that yes because <laughs> i can relate to not <laughs> reacting the way people expect me to <laughs> Exactly. But then when I read Kafka, I realized that that's a technique. The matter-of-fact tone, the characters who simply don't react in a way that would allow you to resolve your cognitive dissonance, that's a technique to induce anxiety. Well, and that makes sense. I simply didn't know what that yeah, technique yeah, was. Yeah, because like, you, you, need, so, you need to have yeah. like a certain understanding of the world. And when there are things that you don't understand, it, they stand out to you and they You're yeah, anxious. it makes you uneasy. And this is, this is why people create stories in the first place. Like going back to my end of things, which is the folklore, like trying to explain why is there thunder, uh, you know, why does do the seasons change like these things that were alarming to people who didn't have science at the time they needed to to understand reasons as to why things happen in order to fill up peace in the world exactly so and that's that's what makes kafka more masterful because he he makes sure that some characters do react to the horrors that um he puts his main character through Mm -hmm. So you relate to them. You're like, oh my God, yeah, this is weird. And then people gradually stop reacting. So it's not like Cursed Bunny, where everyone's like, oh yeah, there's a head in the toilet, just, you know, flush it. And then you're left kind of thinking, you know, you, you're the only you're the only sane one, the uh-huh. reader, who just doesn't understand why this is happening. In Kafka, people realize that this is weird, but then slowly everyone goes back to not reacting. So you're left even more confused because you're like, but guys, why, why are we not all focused on the weird the absurd thing why aren't we trying to Uh fix it you know Uh and it'll become clearer when we jump into uh metamorphosis yes i'm ready (laughs) yeah the we're gonna do that right now the metamorphosis starts off with one of the most well-known lines in modern western literature beyond it was a dark Um, and and it has like a billion translations so beyond Mm -hmm. it was a dark and stormy night (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, that's probably, you're probably right. Um, the translation I am using is a um, version of the Metamorphosis translated by Ian Johnson that was published in 2017. It goes like this. One morning, as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had changed into a monstrous vermin. <laughs> So, like I said, it's been translated a thousand billion ways. I'm going to link a, oh, wait for it, a Tumblr blog, but it, it's actually really good. Um, they compiled all of, like, most of the different translations. You can also go to the Wikipedia page of the Metamorphoses, and you can see that the dreams were sometimes called uneasy, disturbing, sometimes they were called nightmares, troubled, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Um the monstrous vermin was a point of contention. Literally, the minute you look up the metamorphosis analysis, you will get a billion articles being like, well, actually, he wasn't an insect because that's not how it translates. But because, okay, okay the word that they use in German, have you heard? No, about I this? haven't heard this whole dis discussion. Go for it. <laughs> Um, because, you know, that friend that I told you about in 2017, uh, she was like, I think, an English German lit um major so i had to hear a lot about that <laughs> and now you can use it <laughs> it's okay so again german speaking people cover your ears the word that they use is ungesiefer verwandelt okay i'm fucking sorry but um ungesiefer literally means unclean animal not suitable for sacrifice but colloquially they according to wikipedia they use it to mean you know bug like basically dirty nasty disgusting okay and sometimes usually they translate it to vermin the thing is that really pisses uh, literary professors uh, sorry literature professors off is that we don't know what kind of bug because to some people, it can be a cockroach, it can be a beetle, it can be a centipede. It's a fucking it's a centipede to me. I fucking hate centipedes. Um, well, I think, like, but there aren't a lot... Oh, I was going to say, like, centipedes, when where they are naturally, like, especially some of the big nasties, are terrifying. But then, like, in North America, where a lot of English speakers currently are, they're not they're not scary at all <laughs> but you grew up places where there were absolutely terrifying centipedes <laughs> yeah 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 uh, absolutely poisonous venomous what both 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 the poisonous and the venomous like they take a bite out of you you take a bite out of them everyone's biting everyone centipedes fucking suck but anyway it's debated that kafka didn't really give a shit about what kind of insect or creature um he was describing he just wanted to convey the disgusting nature of this transmogrification. Maybe it was meant cool to... Word. I learned it in memory. <laughs> maybe it was meant to be something that's not an actual insect. Like, maybe he left it vague on purpose. It No, no. I will stop you right there because a lot of people did say that. And when I first looked up the metamorphosis a billion years ago before I read it, everyone kept saying that it's probably not an insect. It's probably not even an insect. But throughout the entire description, throughout the book, he describes an insect. Well, I mean, like the like, it is a type of insect is vague on purpose. That's that's what I meant. Oh yeah, um, because like it could yeah, be like not true. a real insect, but like whatever insect yes. that your mind conjures. Because if it's vague, you're yes. going to conjure whatever scariest to you. Like you did just did with the centipede, exactly. Um, and you know, like someone exactly. who is afraid of some other kind of insect is going to be thinking about that now pretty sure 
Exactly. It, no, no, that's so true because, um, and this is part of the reason why everyone always says there are no rules to writing because if you take any class, they'll be like, you need to use specific naming, for example. Mm-hmm. If you're describing, let's say, the front of a building, right? And you shouldn't just say that thing in front of the building and you keep struggling to find words. You should use a specific name. For example, you should use the word facade or actually learn um, better architecture terms to make sure that people have an image in their heads. That's not always necessarily true because Kafka didn't use a specific name, a specific term or specific name here. And the reason he did that is, as Fern said, because he wants to conjure up what's most disgusting to you. Some people fucking like roaches. You people are cool. It's but true. There are people with pet roaches. You probably roaches. would not be friends mm-hmm. if you want to show me your roach collection. <laughs> like, that's where I draw the line. But you're you're really cool. I appreciate that. I've definitely that. seen people showing um, off their Mexican hissing cockroach collections. And, yes. you know, like, yes. I honestly, those are so big that I don't really care it's the ones that are like little and run around people's houses those those ones are worse i think (laughs) no no god like i can't um again i lived places where cockroaches got so big that they were basically gregor uh samsa walking around your house and um (laughs) i don't maybe it was just because i'm i was little and that's how i'm remembering it but they were fucking huge they were so huge that Mm-hmm. Like they heaved when they moved. You could see sweat dripping off them. Just oh, being like, gross! <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> fucking anyway. Um, so we're gonna jump right into the actual story. So uh, Kafka goes on to give us an image that immediately gets the squeamish of us uh, itching everywhere. I itched so much writing this. Script, All right, so, I'm ready yeah. to be squeamish. He said, "Hit me with it." <laughs> Uh, He lay on his armor-hard back and saw, as he lifted his head up a little, his brown arced abdomen divided up into rigid bow-like sections. From this height, the blanket, just about ready to slide off completely, could hardly stay in place. His numerous legs, pitifully thin in comparison to the rest of his circumference, flickered helplessly before his eyes. Ew. But very vivid description. Um, So basically, from the very first sentence, Kafka pushes you face first into a tub of water, or more accurately, a tub of the absurd. Mm -hmm. A big old tub of cognitive dissonance. What's the first thing you, Fern, Uh, as a reader, would try to do to bring yourself out of it? Well, I'd probably be like, oh, well... That's odd, and then keep reading, like, because, because I, I assume, like, <laughs> w- whenever I see something that I don't n- understand, I kind of stick a mental pin in it and save it for later because I, I feel yes. like I need more information to make sense of it, you know. <laughs> and that's what Kafka wants you to do. Well, I would do what because Kafka wants. My boy then. Kafka knows what he's doing. I'm a, I'm a put my okay. trust so. in Kafka's twisted hands, I guess. <laughs> so i think what a lot of people okay you put a mental pin in it but let's say those of us who are trying to make sense of the situation from the get-go you might tell yourself maybe gregor's just dreaming or experiencing hypopnomic hallucinations those are basically the hallucinations that you get the minute you wake up you know sometimes when you like it's actually a medical thing like the minute you wake up you hear someone calling your name yeah like the 
that's a type of hallucination. Okay, that that makes sense. Like because you're kind of like still dreaming, and and yeah, weird stuff happens, and you're like, was that? Did that really? What? I had that happen the other night. I was like, I opened my eyes before yeah. I was like fully awake, and I was like. Those aren't my dogs in my room. And then, like, I woke up and they they weren't there. And I was like, oh, I wasn't awake yet. Because <laughs> I I have I do have dogs. I have two dogs, but they were not my dogs. <laughs> but they were not her dogs. So you had like two random hell beasts just running around your house, and you were like, those those just aren't my. I love the way your brain <laughs> is because it's just like those aren't my dogs. Goes back to sleep. Well, I woke up fully first, you know, like I, I, I recognized that they were not my dogs and I was like, not awake yet. <laughs> and then I went back to sleep. <laughs> I still love it. I still love it. Um, okay, so you might do that because, you know, as a way of justifying the behavior or the cognition. Maybe you'll tell yourself that he's an unreliable narrator. Maybe you're going to reason with yourself and tell yourself, oh, this is just a story. No way it can exist in our, you know, real world, ignoring or denying information that conflicts with existing beliefs. Or you might tell yourself, like Fern, there must be a reasonable explanation um, that Kafka's going to give us mm -hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. Well, just put a pin in that. We'll come back to it later. So, um, what? Okay, so moving on, uh, the narrator describes Gregor's room. So it's a regular human room. It's a little bit small, it, but it has four walls, normal furniture like a bed, a table. Um, Gregor has this bag full of goods he sells because he's a traveling salesman. Um, and he also has a framed picture of a woman, like an illustration that he cut out of a magazine and it's hanging on one of the walls. And this will, we'll get back to this when it's really, Okay, really I, I hate Gregor the, when is people the do that smallest, though, like the, like put, but he's tiny. You think it's a porn game, right? Because a lot of dudes do do that. That, that is like, kind of what I was thinking, game. yeah. It is, he's tiny. <laughs> he's small. He's tiny. I want to protect okay, him. Okay. I want to protect his cockroach ass. Like, listen, I know I said that I don't want to see your cockroach collection, but if you're keeping Gregor Samsa safe, I support that. I Okay, okay. All right, we're going to... Yes. Keep Gregor Samsa safe. Um, so, Fern yeah. likes to protect people um, who So seem what he small. does is that he also, <laughs> like Kafka, uh, uses Gregor's human nature, like the fact he... Um, you know, he dislikes his physically and emotionally demanding job. And he says that this is like Gregor, like he literally just woke up, realized that he's been turned into a uh -huh. bug and then immediately started appreciating his room, his very regular room and remembered his shitty job because it could, like requires constant traveling, bad food, lack of consistency, costing him relationships um, because he has the stress of meeting quotas, getting up early, going to sleep late, wanting to tell his boss where uh -huh, to stick it, uh -huh. except he can't because he has financial and familial obligations. Right, And, and that is kind of um, something that's going to be relatable to a a lot of people because to jobs everyone, can be miserable almost <laughs> yeah yeah because I, I literally like in my script I was like you know like those TikTok videos and Instagram reels where people wish they could call in and then they, they remember they've got a picky eating cat who constantly manages to stick his face in tubs of chocolate <laughs> grapes and onion powder oh did he get his face in onion powder I don't think I heard that one not yet, not onion powder, but um, my parents were eating uh -huh. grapes, so um, they put the seeds aside and he tried to eat some. So I'm like, you fucking 
piece of shit idiot. Like, literally, what kind of cat seeks out grape seeds? <laughs> I mean... Pets will try and eat anything that they can. Like, if they see you eat it, they want to eat it, too. And, like... He's been on a hunger strike for three days because I wouldn't give him wet food. <laughs> because the vet says to, like, decrease the amount of wet food because he's getting fat. Yeah. So he decided, I'm going to eat fucking grape seeds. <laughs> Mother, I made him chicken. Boiled chicken. <laughs> what? It's see, like... You know what I had to do? You know the humiliating thing I had to do? do today? What did you do? To get him to eat? We're talking about Poe, mm-hmm. my cat. Original. I fucking know. But, um, so what I had to do is that I boiled some chicken for him. He wouldn't eat mm-hmm. it. I had to pretend it was my lunch <laughs> and I was eating it. And then he wanted it? Th- this is how animal- He ate it. He fucking ate all of it. I almost cried. <laughs> What I usually do, my my dogs, if they don't want to eat, I'll just sprinkle a little shredded cheese on their dog food, and it it works every time. They love it. They freaking love it. Just a little. Just a little. Past that, now he picks at the cheese and leaves the rest of the food. (laughs) I remember having this issue with uh, my my golden doodle when he was a puppy. He's such a picky eater. He doesn't eat a lot. But I, I eventually had to learn that he does eat when he's hungry. And I need to, like, not try and force food down his throat when he's not hungry. <laughs> My Mastiff, I mean, on the other we'll hand. See. He's at his grandparents' place, so I think that's... He, he usually becomes super picky when he comes to mm-hmm. visit. So, um, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see how that works My out. Mastiff, on the other hand, anyway, eats everything. So, and oh, I have ahead. to, like, be super fast to clean up poop in the yard because she will eat that. <laughs> she comes in with random branches, and Lord. I'm like, where did you get that, child? <laughs> Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. So, um, Gregor, like us, tries to ignore the inflama- uh, the inflammation, the information <laughs> conflicting with his existing beliefs. So, you know what he says? He's like, I'm just going to go back to sleep so I can ignore this foolishness. I love you, Gregor. That would be me. Like, I'm Captain Knuckles. I go to sleep to escape my problems. <laughs> Except he can't because, um... He likes to sleep on his side, and as a bug, he's so wide that he can't flip oh my to gosh. his side. I and he to also this feels so like hard. he feels yeah. I'm also a, sleep, a side sleeper, Gregor. I'm that. sorry. <laughs> so he feels a strange pain in his side every time he tries to, um, and it all reinforces to us the reader that this is not a dream and Kafka won't even give you a chance to decide for yourself literally um in the paragraph right after you start telling yourself that this is a dream he's like it's not a dream bitch (laughs) what's worse though is that now Gregor realizes that he's late he's an hour and a half late for the five o'clock train and his boss probably already knows that he's late because the firm's resident snively idiot because we all know someone like that at work probably already caught the early train and told his boss that Gregor wasn't there in time and if Gregor calls in sick then his boss is going to show up to his home with the doctor to make sure he isn't just being lazy and then he'll see him in bed and he will think that he's being lazy and not you know, a giant fucking insect. Well, he's a be- like he's he's a bug on his back, right? It's like the beetles. They 
they struggle yes. to get onto their front. Yes. Is he struggling to get onto his legs? Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, moving back. Um, so what was I saying? So Gregor is an insect, like I said, and he's having trouble getting out of the bed because his body is so wide and he doesn't have control over his many flailing limbs because they seem to have a mind of their own and they don't listen to his brain. Every time he tries to bend one of them, they extend in turn. He can't bend his head the way you would bend a human head, so he can't even see his lower part and try to figure out how to move that. At one point, he even considers having his dad and the servant girl prop him up except he can't because he always locks the door to his room as a precaution working as a traveling salesman and he's just gotten into the habit of doing that um even when he gets home Mm -hmm. he doesn't have teeth so even when he manages to crash to the ground and hurt his back and head on the way crawl painstakingly to the door he realizes he can't grip the key with his non-existent teeth and unlock it And this is unfortunate, because by now, Gregor's entire family is outside his room. First, they think it's a little strange that he's still at home, but they don't really panic. Uh Our real and prom's tomorrow moment is when the goddamn fucking manager from Gregor's office shows up at their apartment. Like, dedication. Because the manager's offended. He's thinking that Gregor's barricading himself in his room. Um... The family scrambles, uh, like the dad literally sends them out to get a locksmith and the doctor. The manager starts accusing Gregor of stealing money from the office, accuses him of being lazy, and is like, I don't want to mention this in front of your parents, but he mentions it anyway, points out that his sales have been minuscule, even though like the manager himself admits that this time of year is really slow for their business. Gregor begs and Uh pleads and scrambles to try to unlock the door. He keeps blabbering to them about, I have dizzy spells i just need some time to recover but i'm fine now please uh-huh. go tell the office i'm fine you don't need to be dramatic i'll catch the eight o'clock train and then i'll be at the office sometimes people just need to get over their dizzy spells and it almost makes me want to fucking cry i love gregor so much so it becomes clear to us that gregor can't speak. yeah i was just gonna say like like so he can he speak like a normal human no. being then no no he can't he thinks he can because (laughs) he can understand people mm, this is like sleep paralysis where you think you're doing something and then you realize you haven't actually moved yeah like damn it yeah exactly exactly though (laughs) because what he's actually doing is he's hissing he's uttering animalistic garbles um and people are starting Mm -hmm. to get offended because they think that you know this this is a joke to gregor but it's not No one understands how much effort it's taking Gregor to turn the key until he does. Mm -hmm. The manager's shock (laughs) is described as the wind whistling. His mouth falls wide open. He presses his hand to it. He steps away like someone's pummeling into him. Meanwhile, tell me someone literally clutches pearls. Literally, I, I need the. He's literally clutching his pearls. He's so fucking offended. Gregor's mom collapses <laughs> into her skirts. I just imagine. I don't know. Oh, you know when a souffle deflates? That's how I imagine her collapsing. Mm-hmm. Like, I I was gonna say. Her, <laughs> they need one of those Victorian fainting chairs. Don't we all need one they, of those Victorian fainting chairs? Though I need one at work. So that every time a patient yells at me, I faint dramatically. I just want to do it dramatically sometimes just for fun. 
Like Fair. when my dog gets a do- uh, stick trapped in the door and gets stuck outside, I want to be like, again, flopping. <laughs> Who would bring you the smelling salts? Um, you know, I might have to be like a self-rescuing Victorian painting lady Fair. and bring myself the smelling, the smelling salts. salts. Fair. Because I don't trust anyone else to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Not even me? You're too far away. Fair. You're not even in the same country. Fair. Fair. We're not even in the same continent. <laughs> not even close. That's not even true. Close. So anyway, his mom souffles away. Literally, he describes it as her face burying in her boobs. He doesn't say boobs, but he should. <laughs> his dad, and this is our first hint like into it. his dad being a fucking asshole, looks angry. He's so angry that he raises his fist. How dare you turn into a bug? Literally. No, literally (laughs) his dad like raises his fist as if he wants to sucker punch him back into the room like my guy. And then his dad starts to sob like the pathetic narcissistic piece of shit that he is. You will Uh, understand where I'm coming from. Such a dead reaction. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Okay. So the narrator in the middle of the chaos turns her attention back to the house. And this is what I keep saying about tone. The narrator here is very matter of fact about everything. It's like, oh, Gregor woke up and he was a bug. By the way, his room is pretty small and it has four walls and there's a table there and, you know, a like thing hanging from the wall. That, like, he's very matter-of-fact that he makes you think that this is all normal. That dead, flat uh-huh. tone that you get in a lot of weird fiction this books. Is, uh- <laughs> so, basically, he describes how normal everything is. Breakfast dishes piled around the table. Uh, directly across on the opposite wall, there's a photograph of Gregor from when he was in the military. The door down the hall was open wide, and since the door of the apartment was also open, you could see out into the landing and the staircase going down. Which is a good thing, because the manager uses the open door to vamoosh as Beetle Greg bumbles his way after him, trying to balance like one of the bug furniture things from Coraline, <laughs> and asking him... Love it. Do you remember that? Yeah, the, the Coraline... Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. That was a good movie. I know that's one of your favorite movies. It's one of it my is actually movies. darling. Yes. Everything is my favorite everything. I realized that listening to one of my episodes. I was just like, oh, today we're going to talk about my favorite thing. Next episode. By the way, today we're going to talk about this other favorite thing. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, it just means that you love a lot of things. I, and there's like nothing wrong with that. Exactly. It's better than hating everything. Exactly. Um, so anyway, uh, Gregor bumbles and garbled bug speak. Uh, if the, you know, he's asking the manager, like, are you going back to the office? And are you going to be uh, honest about the fact that I'm not lazy and I'm not stealing and I just wasn't pr- feeling pretty well? Pretty please. And I have a family to take care of. So uh, please make sure that everyone knows that I'm a hard worker and put to rest their idle gossip. Um, and he trips over his tiny pathetic legs and splooches on the ground faced first he, as he's trying to chase the manager, basically. Um, and then he finds out that actually, <laughs> the manager is like, ah! <laughs> that would be terrifying, right? <laughs> Not that I feel bad for the manager. I, <laughs> We've I, all had bad bosses. I, if a giant bug started chasing me and garbling bug speak, oh, terrifying. I, I would just pass out. To be honest, mm-hmm. and, and no smelling salts would, would catch you. Me. So the giant bug would catch you. Yes. You'd be kaput. I'd be that- kaput. Yes. <laughs> 
you be caterpillar food. <laughs> anyway, so um, he finds out, actually, Gregor, that um, he can walk a lot better now that he's, God, I'm itching again, flat on the ground. Trying to walk like a bug. No time to think mm-hmm. about that, though. Time to chase the manager before he gets away. Unfortunately, um, Gregor fell a little too close to his mother, who's so grossed out, she starts screaming for help despite his pleading. Asshole dad comes to the rescue and starts ushering Gregor back to his room by waving a newspaper around and stamping his feet like a monkey. Um, it's one of the saddest scenes because now Gregor's given up about chasing the manager because his dad's standing in the way and the manager's out of sight. So he decides maybe the best mm-hmm. thing is for him to retreat to his room. His dad might just be trying to protect him. And so Gregor is very troubled by the idea that he might have to figure out on the spot how to turn his body around because he hasn't really figured out how to use his insect body yet. He doesn't want to uh-huh. inconvenience his dad. Anyone who has had to hold the flashlight for their dad while they're fixing shit can probably relate. <laughs> I have definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can relate by um, doing math homework with my dad. Because, yeah, yeah, that's that's how I, I feel. We, we didn't have to fix shit, but yeah. When he finally oh, starts my, to figure it out, did, his dad I, I'd shows his... I'd my dad, yeah. Sorry? Sorry, never mind. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. You say it. I didn't hear you. No, I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, we we helped with all the work around the house. And so very much relate. Had to hold flashlights. Had to hold boards. Had while they to were hold your dignity over. as you got screamed My dignity at. <laughs> in a bucket. Because, well, actually, it was I don't mind learning how to do that kind of stuff. But, you know, this is kind of turning into a tangent. And I'm going to let you get back. I'm going to let you finish. I'm going to let you finish, (laughs) Crow. (laughs) Okay, so when Gregor finally figures it out, his dad shows his appreciation by nudging him in the bug butt with the manager's cane because the manager sort of forgot his cane and his coat and his top hat and fucking everything at the Samsa house. He hisses (laughs) the dad like... (laughs) The dad hisses at Gregor, hurries him up. So Gregor is sort of squeezed through the barely... He doesn't even do him the courtesy of, like, fucking opening the door. The door is barely open, so Gregor has to squeeze inside. It scrapes his entire side and wounds him. He starts bleeding profusely and has to sort of crawl to the far corner of the room. And the door... Does the family realize that this is Gregor? Um, Or are they, like... This is um, some giant bug that's in. No, they realize that it's room. Gregor. They realize it because they sort of how do we kind know? of hear his voice, but they can't understand what he's saying. Is how I rationalized it. Okay. But they know it's okay. Gregor so for they, sure. They're just yeah. yeah. I I mean a lot of this I'm sure can be excused by shock exactly. because that would be shocking exactly. <laughs> So Gregor wakes up, still wounded and dizzy from the events of the first day. One of his legs was crippled during the crazy thing that happened, but he's learned how to Uh scurry on the ground on his stomach. Uh, He still has a throbbing scar on his side where it scraped on the door. There's a crack in the door, Mm -hmm. and it gives us another glimpse into the family's normal, like, very normal life. They have glass, gas lanterns, sorry, that are lit. His father usually reads the newspaper in a loud voice 
voice in the afternoon to his mother and sister, but it's quiet now. Gregor explains that away as, you know, maybe his dad just stopped doing that the way that his sister told him he has in an older letter. There's a bowl uh -huh, of milk and uh -huh. bread by the door, because Gregor used to like milk, and the smell draws him to the bowl, except he finds that now, as a bug, he doesn't have an appetite for it the way that he used to. He waits by the door, hoping someone's going to come in, or that he can convince them to, but no one does. Even though Gregor knows the house isn't really empty, he can see the gas lantern being turned on and then off late at night. He can hear his family walking around on tiptoes. After a while, lying on the floor in the middle of his room, uh, he starts to feel anxious, though he doesn't really know why. So he shimmies under the couch, which is cramped, he can't really raise his head there, but it feels incredibly comfortable in that position for some reason. He's bugifying, basically. He stays there uh -huh. all night, occasionally being woken up by pangs of hunger, which he tolerates because he doesn't want to bother his family, who are already going through a great deal because of him. From this point on, we see the family and Gregor's dealing with the situation now that they've more or less accepted the initial shock. The biggest factor for us uh -huh. here is Gregor's sister. She's the one that has the most contact with him, but she's pure fucking evil. Some people will be like, but Crow, she's a child. I don't fucking care. She's 17. <laughs> Children can. Anyway. Children can be. Oh, yeah. No, you go ahead. I said children can be evil. <laughs> there are child serial killers. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it but, could be brain trauma, we don't know. But she's fucking evil. And she's 17, so she's hardly a child. She was a child in, at uh -huh. that time, in fucking 1917. Uh -huh. I, mean, I mean, we do still call 17-year-olds children, but a lot of times it's because it's like okay, this adult should not be talking to this child, you know, and yeah. <laughs> in not, that context. Um, this child should um, not but, be but out they there are 17-year-olds are very capable. Was dead. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. 17-year-olds yeah. are very capable. They yes. can do a lot of different things. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. This so. is not a small child. That's the important thing. Exactly. Uh, she's the one who left the bowl of milk for him. She's the one who comes in the next morning and notices he hasn't eaten anything. So she starts to bring him rotten and leftover food, which he finds that he enjoys more. She cleans his room every day. Uh -huh. And he even says that he appreciates how she starts to notice his patterns and treat him accordingly. Like um, he likes to have a chair by the window so that he can prop himself up and watch the sort of city go by. So every time she cleans the room, room she pushes the chair back to the window he loves his fucking sister man um and what he decides to do is that he decides to return the evil. favor by hiding out of sight so every time he knows she's going to come in um he hides under the couch and covers himself with a sheet and she's shown to appreciate this um and we start to know, mm -hmm. so that becomes a routine. She comes in, she leaves food for him twice a day. She cleans the um, room and she sort of takes charge of his situation. Um, and we start to see... She's not sounding evil so far at all. She's sounding pretty good, actually. Right now. Yeah, I thought so, too. Mm -hmm. Um we start to see normalization of Gregor's current state um, through, for example, the signs of disgust in his family. Like whenever his sister runs to, like comes into the room, she immediately runs to open the windows um, because like 
it's implied that he smells disgusting. Even his mom, when she first received the initial shock, the first thing she did was open the window despite the freezing cold and put her head outside just to be able to breathe. So his sister always done, uh-huh. does that, opens the door to like clean the thing, goes straight to the windows to open them, and it frightens him. It leaves him trembling under the couch when she does this twice a day. But he forgives her because he knows it's unbearable for anyone to be in a room with him with the windows closed. I feel so fucking bad for him. Um, his sister Aww. picks up anything he's touched with a rag. She throws out all of the food he touched, even if he hasn't eaten it, just suspecting that he touched it. His sister and his mother cannot mm-hmm. be around him when they're, t- when they're taking care of his room. He always mm-hmm. has to be hidden under a couch and covers himself with a sheet. Um, so... Gregor, in turn, also starts to accept the absurd situation that he's in. Like we said, first he tried to act like a human. He tried to walk upright. He didn't use his feelers or his insect legs, no matter how naturally it felt. He tried to drink milk and bread, which he used to enjoy. But soon, he learns to... You know what this is really... Okay, I I just want to say this real quick. Um, This is really kind of reminding me of like when a kid comes out as anything other than what their parents expected them to be. Like when a really conservative family has someone come out as gay or like even when I uh, came out with my family and told them, you know, like, hey, I'm on the autism spectrum. Mm, And mm. they were like, what? Like how they just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to acknowledge it. And, um, you know, you're, you go through that stage of like, I'm sorry, I'm this way. I don't know what's wrong with me. You try and, uh, adjust your life and hide it to make them feel more comfortable. And, you know, like that, that's really, what I keep thinking, like, if you don't fit that standard that they wanted you to, and you feel that expectation, like, especially if you have, like, a, a family that really expected you to be a certain way, and you're yeah. not that way, yeah. uh, it just, like, it was yeah. hitting me in the feels, you know, like, no, it, it <laughs> how he has really to hide what he like, is. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, the thing about Kafka is that he genuinely didn't, like, read about his life. I'm he genuinely didn't mm-hmm. seem to want fame or recognition from writing his works. It genuinely seemed to be a way for him to cope with his anxiety and depression. And a lot of it stemmed from being rejected by his family, especially his father, who wanted to mm-hmm. mold him into the specific idea of the perfect son. And when Kafka just wasn't that, his dad sort of put him through the kind of hell that Gregor goes through. And it's much of the stuff that uh-huh, you're saying, uh-huh. and it's much of the stuff that a lot of neurodiverse people, I'm not just saying only neurodiverse people can be abused, by the way, everyone can be abused. But I'm saying like, you know, stuff that right. it's just the experiences we have from you our know. experience, yeah. you know, uh-huh. um, if you don't fit the image of the perfect child or the quote unquote normal child, then you're going to be rejected and you're going to be treated this way. And you're you're going to be sucker punched in the feels a lot more. Just like, trust me. Because what have I you know a lot of parents now, now and the yeah. way he reacts to the way that his family treat him? He, I mean, he's adopted that sense of shame. And yes. I, I think like when your family reacts to you being different in this way, that's what you do. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm such an inconvenience. Yes. Let me just like hide myself in the closet exactly. so you don't have to see it. And let me try and mask away the ways that I'm different and hide exactly. them and, and pretend that everything is normal, even exactly. though we all know it's not. And it's we, not. we really can't 
deal, put up an effective illusion that it is, you know? And, and I think like a, a lot of people will relate to that for different reasons because, uh, but I also think like it's really good. I've seen a lot of parents try and be a lot more accepting of their kids these days. Uh, I think there's been a lot of more awareness yeah. put on this fact. So hopefully we'll continue to see change. But I, I think a lot of people will understand and relate to this shame and uh, the way that Gregor is feeling yeah. when you feel like you don't measure up to your family's standards exactly. because you're different in some way. It's, it's hard. Exactly. It is. Exactly. That's so true. And it gets worse um, because <laughs> um, despite everything, you know, despite the fact that his sister does what she can, no one really talks to Gregor because they think he can't understand what they're saying. So he has to make right. do by plastering himself to walls where he thinks he can hear people talk. Um, and through that, he learns bits and pieces like that the old servant girl begged to be let go after she found out what Gregor is now, crying tears of joy when she left. His mother and sister now oh. do most of the housework and the family wasn't eating much now. He learns that his father informed the family of their financial situation because they were completely reliant on Gregor before work. this they only had enough mm -hmm. money to sustain them for a year or two, but they needed money to spend now. Gregor recalls the warmth he used to feel, giving almost all of his money to his family. How that warmth was no longer there, like he was expected to take on this role. You'd think that this was because his family was incapable of working. I found a note I left on one of the paragraphs and it literally says, Get a job, Gregor's dad. Because his dad... <laughs> His dad hasn't had a job in five years and always used to pretend that he was old and frail. He used to dress up in a sleeping gown, pretending he couldn't get up from mm -hmm. the arm from his armchair to greet his son. He always falls asleep like everywhere around the house and just pretends that he's so fucking exhausted, which is just so fucking narcissistic to get the way that to get the things that you want. Um, pretending to be sick is a I huge thing, by the way. Um, I do know, yeah I, yeah, I have definitely heard of people, that exact yeah. scenario happening yeah. in some cases, where people just don't want to work. Yeah, and, and pretend to be yeah, sick. Yeah, they manipulate the people, yeah, yep. Um, mm -hmm. You can see why, like, you know why the mom can't get a job. How do we because, know he's pretending, yeah. though? How do we know the dad is pretending and it's not real? You'll see. Um, oh, okay. You'll see. Okay. Uh, Kafka leaves no questions unanswered, except for one. You can see why the mom can't get a job, because she is old and frail. She has really bad asthma, um, and I guess it makes sense mm -hmm. why Greta, his sister, wouldn't have a job, because she's 17, especially back, you know, back then. I mean, it's normal for 17-year-olds to have jobs now, but back then, That's especially true. when you have a brother to take care of you, like, not during the war, then it makes sense. His dad's just an asshole. And the reason I said, uh, you know, okay. I'm not even going to leave it to later. I'll just tell you now. Um, his dad is forced to get a job and it like he takes the job and he does it perfectly well. And even besides that, he takes a job as like a bank assistant or a security guard or something. Um, but besides that, his dad is incredibly physically strong and he uses that strength to terrorize his family. He's not frail. Oh. He's not old. Oh. Yeah. And we're, we're getting to that, that scene That makes right it now. so much I'm just worse. i that one because it's so important. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
But Gregor didn't mind all of that, because Greta, his sister, still appreciated him, and he, and he remained very close to her. He was actually planning on sending her to an expensive music conservatory this coming Christmas, because she loved to play the violin. He wanted it to be a surprise, and he still hoped he could do that come Christmas Eve. In the meantime, Gregor is filled with guilt and sorrow. He blames himself and not his lazy family for their current financial misfortune. So uh, yeah, like yeah. it's it's relatable, but it's sad. But you also want to like take him. him and just say like it, you know, like it's not all on you. I know. You know, Gregor is just like, <laughs> literally I find him relatable. Like for <laughs> anyone who has been in an abusive situation, you will just read a lot of Kafka's works and just be like, "Fuck me, man." <laughs> Like, why did you have to punch yeah. me in the feels? Why yeah. did you have to remind me? This isn't therapy. So. <laughs> well, and um. I think this is part partially it because um, when, if you, if anyone out there has not read Joseph Campbell, I do recommend those books because he does talk about how we use stories um, and symbols in stories to confront emotions and situations that are hard to process and, and, kind of use those stories to process emotions and yeah. difficult situations. Uh, and, and he was applying it to folklore, which I love to do. I, I love that. Uh, but I, I think Kafka uses that sort of imagery and symbolism very effectively, where he's taking these very difficult family dynamics uh, yeah. and presenting them in a way that you understand it, you know, like through the story, it, it helps you understand your own situation Dude. in a way that's much easier to comprehend than if someone just said like, hey, your family is toxic. I think people's reaction is to say like, no, no, it's not. But then like you tell them this crazy story of a toxic family and you're like, I feel that. <laughs> but do you realize what you're saying, right? That... That what? people that my... use stories and folklore and mythology to overcome their cognitive dissonance of a situation they can't understand. Yes. Boom. And I would agree with that. I, I agree with your thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so there are also moments where Gregor tries to fight against the absurd. Um, so mm -hmm. this is a very important scene for it. Um what Greta decides to do. Basically, Gregor um, at first starts to accept his insect life, right, life lifestyle, right? So what he does is that he realizes he can climb on the walls and the ceiling. And something that he really enjoys doing is climbing all the way up on the ceiling and then letting himself fall. He learns how to not get hurt, so it's just really fun to him. Greta realizes this and decides that she needs to take the furniture out of the room so that he has more room to sort of scamper around, you know, as he pleases. Mm -hmm. And at first, Gregor appreciates this because he thinks it's an amazing idea idea. The thing is that Greta doesn't have the strength to move, move all of the furniture outside the room and she doesn't want to ask her dad, which is another red flag. She even has to like move the furniture out yeah. of the room when her dad is not at home. Um, so that, that is definitely yeah. a sign of a toxic yep. parent. Like if, 
if you don't feel like you can talk to them (laughs) he blows up at them he blows up at them he yells he screams he stomps around he's very um emotionally abusive and the way that they're so terrified of him makes me think that at some point he must have been physically abusive and he is physically abusive to gregor by the way I'm, i'm gonna mention that right now so basically um what she does is that she goes to her mom her mom has been really wanting to see gregor but um greta and the dad have been preventing her from doing that because they think that she's too emotionally frail and she's gonna faint and whatnot and Greta this is the reason why I say that she's fucking evil she takes on this role of being like Gregor's caretaker and prevents anyone else from stepping into that role she's the one who decides that she needs to take the furniture out you know The mother suggests Uh that, hey, if we're doing that, doesn't that mean that we're giving up on Gregor? What if he becomes human again? What if he needs us to believe that he's going to become human again for that to happen? So Gregor Uh hears this and he realizes that the lack of human contact and the monotony of his life pushed him into a sense of acceptance of the absurdity. So Otherwise, he would never accept his room being empty. And he starts to think, this acceptance is dangerous. If his room is left empty, allowing him to crawl around, it'll encourage him to leave behind and forget his human nature. So he changes his mind. No one's removing anything. Especially things like his old writing desk, which he used as a business student, his chest of drawers, the picture of the illustrated woman he had hanging up on the wall. He can't do Uh much about it, though, because he doesn't want to scare his mom and his sister by coming out. So he waits for them to sort of come out of the room, like leave the room at first. And then he decides that he's going to come out and he's going to plaster himself to the wall where he has the picture of the woman to try to convince them to leave it alone. And it's so sad because Uh literally he describes them dragging the furniture out of the room, causing him a pain that he describes as a great swollen commotion on all sides. So firmly uh, was he pulling in his head and legs and pressing his body into the floor. I think this was meant as a physical sensation, but to me, it felt emotional too. So anyway, it's probably yeah. both. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, could be both. But the, he has no way to communicate with yeah. them that he he wants to like he can't talk to them really. He's trying so, now when he plasters himself to the picture of the wall, and you can see yeah. that his sister they, doesn't give a shit. Why? She just go ahead. Because all right, when tell he, me, yeah. tell me why. <laughs> Because when she comes in and she sees him doing that. So she tries to usher her mom out of the room and throws him a look that literally says, I am going to come in there with a broom to swat you away and take that picture. And it literally says, well, let her just try. And he is so fucking tiny. Like all he wants is to keep his picture on the wall. Okay. I've decided I'm going to picture it as like a, a... Art Nouveau illustration instead of like a porn thing. <laughs> it's, not a, it's it's described as an illustration. It's not described as being lewd. It's literally well, that's a woman it, that's what wearing I said. A, like a you know those big fur, um, what were the arm warmers that ladies used to have that they put both of their arms in it the muff your elbow. Like in Russia. I think it's called a muff. A muff? Yeah, yeah. I think it's called a muff, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think But yeah, no, th- I, I'm picturing it hard that now instead because <laughs> good for her. Good for her. Good for her. No, you would not want to be naked in Russia. Exactly. That is not the climate for that. <laughs> 
so anyway um his sister tries to take his mom out like out of the room um and but the mom sees him anyway and she faints so uh greta is really upset and she's like gregor you like that's literally the first thing she has said to him since he's transformed she leaves him she goes to grab Uh the smelling salts um gregor sort of completely kind of forgets the absurd situation that he's in because he chases after his sister trying to reason with her hoping that she'll understand him um and she ends up dropping the smelling salts his mother's fainted in the other room everything is in absolute chaos who comes home Uh then but gregor's dad gregor's dad is an absolute asshole he takes one look at the situation and realizes what's going on so he decides Uh that he's going to terrorize his son he corners gregor in a room and starts making these very absurd stomping motions like he raises his leg really slowly slowly and then stomps it back down and gregor's just like he's trying to because now gregor is in greta's room right because he chased after her Mm -hmm. he just wants to like step past his dad to go back into his own room and lock himself in but but his dad is locking like uh, sorry blocking the doorway and then what his dad decides Uh to do is that he grabs a bunch of apples from the fruit basket and starts tossing them at gregor until one of them hits him square in the back and injures him so he starts bleeding literally crawling back to his room to escape the violence okay Uh um Mm -hmm. and yeah so that's where we leave off on chapter two and then i explain like i have this whole thing explaining sorry no i was just gonna say like if he's trapping him in there it's very clear he's not trying to fix this situation he's He's, yeah because if he wanted to fix this situation he'd make it very possible for gregor to leave exactly no he wanted to torture him you're right okay he's awful he's a piece of shit i'm with you definitely a piece of shit the dad um he's like the worst one out of all of them but his sister is kind of evil too and the reason why is because for example Gregor theorizes that part of the reason she wanted to empty the room was to make his space more terrifying so that he would be more reliant on her. And she does exhibit more controlling behavior because when we go to chapter three, the final chapter in the um, short story, um, they -hmm. basically start telling us how the family has learned to adapt. The mother and the sister now do most of the housework. They have a cleaning lady that comes in sometimes who is on I, I kind of like her. She's not scared of Gregor at all. She kind of teases him and keeps telling him, come here, dung beetle, go there, but in a friendly way, according to what Gregor <laughs> understands. When he hisses at her one day and like, you know, tries to seem all mean and threatening, she grabs a chair and like lifts it up and she's like you know, if you keep acting that way, I'm going to toss the chair. And then he just like ignores her. So she puts the chair back down. Like she, she's just like, you know, joking around mm-hmm. with him and that kind of thing. Um, so the family starts to kind of hate Gregor uh, more and more. It's actually well, really yeah. sad because Mm -hmm. like i said they don't have a consistent servant girl anymore the mom starts working in like sewing work so she sews ladies undergarments and the sister takes up a job um i think as like a 
I, I can't really remember. I think she was like a saleswoman at a store or something. Um, so, and they start selling the pieces of family jewelry. And the thing that upsets them the most, like Gregor hears them talking through the walls, is that they can't leave the apartment uh, because it's impossible to move Gregor with them. They want to move to a smaller apartment that they can't afford, but they can't. And okay. they start <clears throat> sort of hating Gregor for that. And the dad yeah. still works okay. um, as, you let know, me, as that Let me just say this, assistant. though. So, so they resent him because they have to work to support him. him. Exactly. But did they appreciate, like, he didn't resent them when he was working to support them and that none of them were working, you know? That, but that was fine. Uh, <laughs> that was fine. That was fine. It's it's fine when it works one way and not fine when it works another. Uh, that That's absurd. <laughs> and exactly. And I think that is kind of showing, you know, like, okay, so he used to take care of all of you. He used to support all of you. Exactly. And did you appreciate that? Did you appreciate him or were you still kind of like awful? Because like the fact that he's so apologetic about his existence, like so quick to going to that, it does make you feel like, they didn't, you know, exactly. like, he, he doesn't have an ego built up the way someone does when they know they're supporting everyone. And everyone is appreciative of that. You exactly. know, he, he didn't have that kind of ego. So I feel like he was probably in a situation where he was being used and manipulated. Exactly. And uh, now that that she was on the other foot, they're resentful of that. So this is definitely a story about a toxic family <laughs> it's true it's so true though because um what was i going to say it's like like i said his sister for example now that she realizes she can't make you know she can't get what she wants out of him because it is described in the beginning of the book that she didn't really do much she liked to spend the money and sort of fuck around mm -hmm. literally that's all she did um so now mm -hmm. that she can't do that anymore she starts to resent him to the point where she no longer feeds him she starts kicking like rotten food from under the door um, she stops uh -huh. cleaning his room and you would think, okay, maybe she's just really tired from coming home from work. Maybe she doesn't have time to take care of him, but that's not the case. She's doing this out of spite. And how we know this is that Gregor starts trying to attract her attention to the fact that his room is dirty and it's, you know, he's being neglected and he starts feeling very angry over it. But, um, like, literally streaks of dirt start collecting on the walls and there are, like, tangles of dust and garbage. So what his mom does, his mom is the only good person in this entire story. She feels bad for him. So she decides that she's going to come in and clean the room. Greta is furious when she finds out. What she does is that um, her dad, her abusive fucking dad, is sleeping in the middle of the living room as he does in the armchair every night. She goes to the uh -huh. middle of the living room and starts throwing a major tantrum, screaming and crying and banging her fists on the table until her dad wakes up startled and loses it at her mom and tells her mom that she is not allowed to clean Gregor's room anymore. And in fact, not even Greta is allowed to to clean the room anymore because you know narcissists like you you can never really tell how they're going to react mm -hmm. to things and i think that's what greta wanted she yeah. wanted no yeah. one to like lay like step into gregor's room she was the only one who is allowed that amount of control and she wants to take out her spite and contempt you know towards her brother the way that mm -hmm. she wanted basically 
So, Which shows she just always saw him as a meal yeah. ticket to get what she wanted exactly. and, and not as someone that she loved. Exactly. And it gets a lot worse because um, basically they have to rent out one of the rooms to afford living in the apartment. Um, they rent it out to these three men with, who are really fucking weird because apparently one of them is like the leader of the hmm. group and the other two just listen to everything he fucking says. They don't even talk much. He's the only one that says shit. And apparently hmm. those three men are very meticulous about how tidy they want the room to be. So Gregor is literally locked into his room all day and night, not allowed to come out um and every like piece of furniture that the family no longer needs and can't manage to sell or anything they shove it into gregor's room so it turns into a dirty disgusting storage room he doesn't even have any space to move around anymore um he lives in constant misery uh, the climactic scene poor in, gregor i know i know the climactic scene is the most heartbreaking one i think fucking ever um, oh, and also, like, so you know, Gregor isn't eating at this point. He's absolutely fucking miserable. But um, basically... Yeah, poor Gregor. Yeah, I know. I just want to hug him. <laughs> I, I, I see what gas, you so. mean. He's small. I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so his sister starts playing the violin in the kitchen one day. And the men renting the room hear her. And they ask her to come play for all of them in the living room. So she starts playing, everyone's listening, like the whole family and the three men are in the living room. Gregor decides to creep out of the room because he remembers how beautifully his sister plays and he really wants for that connection he used to have with her back. So mm -hmm. he thinks that he's going to sort of whisk his sister away and remind her that he's still the brother that she loves. And he imagines this scene in his head where people are going to try to fight him off and stand between him and his sister, but he's not going to allow them to do that. And he's still going to send her to the music conservatory. And he has this like really fantastical image in his head where he gets his family back. Except that's not mm -hmm. what happens because the men notice him and sort of gleefully point him out to the dad. Um, and they're like, well, because your house is so fucking disgusting, we're not going to pay for our stay here. Uh, otherwise, we're basically going to give you a bad Yelp review and you're going to be sorry. Um, oh, no. Um, at that point, his sister is actually furious that Gregor ruined her, you know, quote unquote uh, recital. So mm -hmm. she starts telling the parents that we can't go on like this any longer because that thing is not my brother and I'm not going to even say his name in front of it we need to get rid of it you know we just need to get fucking rid of it and the dad is like well you know okay I understand that you're right but what should we do you know she doesn't really say anything but it's very clear that she's implying that they need to kill it because he's making their life mm -hmm. miserable um, and she keeps saying, yeah. you need to, like, to her dad, it it must be gotten rid of. And obviously, it's not my brother, because if it was my brother, he would be sensible enough to leave us and go die somewhere, you know, and not bring shame to the family or bring us this kind of misery. So it's just really fucking sad. That's, um, that's disgusting. That yeah, is absolutely yeah. disgusting. Like, yeah. that's, She's just completely That's such a vile. shit take. And you should read, literally read the scene. 
where before he shows himself he's like literally it says he was determined to press forward right to his sister to tug at her dress and to indicate to her in his way that she might still come with her violin into his room because no one here valued the recital as he wanted to value it like just what the actual fuck Uh, greta what the fuck is wrong with you and the way that he's talking now you know that he was a good brother and she knew that he was a good brother but she's just so sick of him yeah that now you know what she wants to be done with him so so selfish that yeah she yeah that's that's so gross because you can think about like a million different toxic relationships and it it all kind of resonates with like oh i remember people being toxic like yeah (laughs) like it just uh if you've ever had toxic relationships this story is going to get you yeah Uh, it literally almost made me cry like i don't cry very easily but i was so near tears just reading this and being like i know people like this and i've been in situations Mm -hmm. like this and literally why you know and it doesn't just hurt when you go through it it hurts when you see people you love go through it and cognitive dissonance again because you can't make sense of why people treat people this way and i think to me what's even more absurd than the fact someone turned into a giant fucking insect is that people can be this cruel to someone who was so kind and generous to them and that's not explained either yeah and and i think like the cognitive dissonance it it's not just about the facts because like gregor needs to accept that his family is toxic and you know they have these toxic traits and it's not like he doesn't see them it's that he doesn't he's not prepared to emotionally accept that yeah and i think that's very common when you're in some sort of toxic relationship whether it's you know family or friends or work relate you know whatever uh when you have put so much into something and you value it and you think like, oh, this person values me too. And you get into a situation and suddenly see that, no, they didn't value you. They were using you. Uh, that is incredibly difficult to accept. And there is, <clears throat> sorry, I'm no losing my voice again. There is cognitive dissonance around that until exactly. you have time to emotionally accept process and process, it. which is yeah. very difficult exactly exactly so then we go to like basically the end of the story um gregor Uh kind of crawls back into his room his sister firmly locks the door and like literally bolts it up um so oh and by the way i didn't mention that throughout all of this the apple that his dad threw got stuck in his back and no one tended to the wound so the wound is still inflamed it's still in his back to this very day um that sucks yeah. yeah and it literally says that on this night he still tried to remember his family with deep feelings of love Um, So he thought that it might be a good, like his sister was right, he needs to disappear. And what happens Mm -hmm. is that kind of like, kind of willing it, kind of not, uh, as the clock tower struck three in the morning, um, his head sank down and out of his nostrils flowed out weakly his last breath. 
and I think that yeah that was the scene that almost drove me to tears and I never thought it would be about a big giant fucking bug creature and I know some people try to describe it as like a humorous story or a wacky tale and it's just not it's fucking tragic because we forget about the fact that he's an insect we forget that this is weird fiction it could be anything like mm-hmm. literally if he had been crippled in the war or during a that's that's the one i kept thinking about if he had yeah. gotten sick mm-hmm. if anything that would have made him useless to his family and that's the point that's one of the metaphors that kafka uses something disgusting something unworthy something that gregor might view himself as because he's no longer able to provide for his family and something that gregor can't overcome so mm-hmm. it's turned him into something unworthy of love. The rest of the story, like the rest of the tale, is basically just this well, not tragic- unworthy of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's not unworthy of love. Because I, I just want to say to that himself, it's just he thinks he's, but unworthy. he views himself that way because his family views of him course, that way. Yeah. Uh, I think if someone more sane were in that situation, because like just read about the people who are great parents to someone with Down syndrome or um, some some other situation where they require a lot of care um, and they just still absolutely love, love, love their family members and put in that extra work because, you know, they have good intentions. So to... But obviously the the family is someone who was raised Mm -hmm. with that kind of love would not think the way that Gregor's thinking right now. Obviously, this was a kind of abuse that went on for ages to get to the point that it got to now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I definitely see that as well. And Mm -hmm. the rest of it isn't any better because the the cleaning lady is the one who figures out that he's dead um and she's the one who disposes of his body uh his parents more or less rejoice in the fact that he's dead now greta's absolutely over the moon um with this and they all pretend to go into the room and cry about it as if it's it's just this tiny family tragedy that's bittersweet and they get over it and like the cleaning lady kind of tries to tell them how she disposed of the body but the parents basically just kick her out they don't want they don't even want to know Mm -hmm. they don't give a shit they don't care um they're not even horrified they're not even like oh no we wanted to like take care of it or something just absolutely not curious at all and they decide to go out and live their lives as a normal they decide to go on a family outing basically and at the end of the book they basically uh, sorry the story the the Mr. and Mrs. Samza take a look at their daughter and realize that she's blossomed into this wonderful young lady and it's time for them to find someone to marry her. And that's it. That's the story of Gregor Samza. The fucking tiniest yeah. small that was, who I've ever lived. That was a sad one. I yeah, know. that that was a tough one. <laughs> it it is. Before we end it though. God. I don't even know. Um, Let's go back to our earlier attempt at correcting our cognitive dissonance. So when you told yourself that Gregor's just dreaming or experiencing hallucinations, um, Kafka takes that apart in the next paragraph because he quickly tells you that 
Gregor is not dreaming, and he goes on to describe Gregor's room, transitions us into Gregor's anxiety-riddled brain, his fears about his physically and emotionally demanding job, his fear of arriving late at said job and losing it, and so forth. And if we tell ourselves that Gregor is an unreliable narrator, there's nothing in the story that implies that this is true. Um, Because everyone Uh reacts appropriately to his like to his being his condition no one right yeah right yeah um reasons uh, or if you try to reason with yourself that this is just a story and there's no way it can exist in our world the art of kafka is that he presents the story in a way that's very natural to readers he directs his focus on our sense of reality this isn't a fantasy world like Denpau Torishima or the Dark, to- Dark Towers or World War Z. This is the world of a quiet family who could exist anywhere. He keeps things very vague too. He doesn't mention what year it is. He doesn't mention where the story takes place. So it's a family with breakfast laid out on the table, small but comfortable rooms with desks and a chest of drawers and pictures hanging off walls a mother and sister who help do the housework, and a narcissistic, emotionally mm-hmm. abusive father, and a demanding, unsympathetic boss, and the horrors of financial instability. He also tells us about mm-hmm. insects who prefer rotten to fresh food, who like to stay in dark corners, who smell awful and like to crawl around the hot house. He acknowledges our sense of reality. So to reject Kafka's Uh sense of reality is to have to reject our own first. And that's why he manages to play on our fears so well. It's like part of us knows that this could probably not happen in real life, but another part of us keeps questioning, well, why couldn't it, you know? So, yeah. I, I think like by putting something recognizably absurd in the middle of the story he forces you to recognize the things that are absurd that you don't want that you accept as normal Uh, like the incredibly toxic relationships that are just as absurd and ridiculous and unacceptable but we somehow manage to trick ourselves into accepting them all the time all the time and so so he uses the one absurd bit of reality to force us to accept the things that, or to to really examine the things that we have already accepted and shouldn't have. Exactly, exactly. And that's, I don't want to say the true essence of the Kafka-esque, because it's a very complex term, as we all know, and I think we're going to pick it apart in the future too. But it's basically sudden, absurd circumstances, uncontrollable, inevitable misery that we can't overcome, a character's conflict with the absurd, a character's having to accept it, a character's sense of the world that is warped. Um, But characters and us as readers, we try to make sense of it anyway. There's complex, Uh unclear processes, systems, rules. He doesn't explain to us why Gregor is an insect, Nothing makes sense. Everything is disorderly, and we have to plow forward mm-hmm. despite that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, that is my second take on Kafka. I feel like I feel like I'm probably going to end up not splitting this episode into two. Like I'll split it into two, but publish them on the same day. So if you want uh-huh. to stop at any point, then you can stop, and you can pick up. 
what do you think? Do you think that's a good idea? You could do that. Yeah, you could do that. I, I think it was, a, I think, um, yeah, it was a very good episode. I got to say, well done, Crow. Thank you. Um, because I was, I think you have really metamorphosized your <laughs> views on, on Kafka. Uh, and I think it was very well told. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the metamorphosizing. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for tuning into our October episodes. We appreciate it so much. Um, and again, this time we're going to include it in the actual podcast and not slap it in at the end. Uh, so basically, <laughs> if you... If you enjoy our podcast, then feel free to give us a follow. We're available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple, uh, Apple, but why can't I talk today? Apple Podcast and wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, if you would want to like write us a review, we would really, really, really fucking appreciate it because we want to know what you think. We want your suggestions on what kind of folklore, mythology, or weird fiction, or just weird stuff you want us to talk about. Um, and uh, if you have more, like if you want to you know listen to bloopers hopefully take a look at the crazy wacky pictures that we like to post about our episodes or trailers that are currently in progress then you can follow us on our social media which will be linked on in the description or i don't know podcast the notes. show notes yeah podcast notes yeah because show notes, we I guess have is what they're a called. twitter um instagram TikTok, and we have an email if you want to send us uh, wacky tales. Tell us about the weirdest thing that happened in your week or the weirdest story you've ever read. I don't know. Yeah. So, anyway, that is going to be (laughs) us for October. We'll um, catch you in November, serial killer month. This is Crow, and And this is Fern. (laughs) Signing off. Bye. Bye.